You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. This week, we're talking all about cookies because every year, one lucky person at Bon Appetit, actually, I'm not even sure if it's lucky. It's a very tough assignment, but one editor gets to develop all of the holiday cookies for our December issue. And they have to be not only delicious, but they got to be beautiful, they got to be makeable, they got to be packable. It's a tall order, but this year, Rick Sugarman Martinez, named for his deep love of all things dessert, stepped up to that challenge. So I talked to Rick about how he conceived his cookies, how he made them, and I asked for some tips so you can make them at home. And after that, associate editor Alex Delaney is back to tell us which three cocktails we should be drinking now that winter has officially hit. And then finally, we have Alex Beggs with the latest installment of Cook, Mary Kill. Before we get to the show, I just want to let you know we are now doing kind of like a monthly mailbag segment. Did one last month, have another one coming out in a couple weeks. If you have any questions, hit us up about how we do what we do, anything, all things Bon Appetit. You can email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. All right, here is Rick Martinez. Rick Martinez, have you ever actually won a cookie swap? Actually, last year, yeah. I may I I had a, I struggled a lot because the people that were hosting the swap wanted to make a lot of my cookie recipes from other years, so I couldn't actually make any of my own previous cookie recipes. Wow, so it's like Taylor Swift or something and she loses her publishing rights. Yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> wow. So I actually had to invent a new cookie recipe specifically for that swap. But I did a kind of a, a cross between a fudgy whoopie pie with like a homemade orange marshmallow uh, situation sandwich cookie. Oh, wow. That sounds delicious. Yeah. And it looks cool. What did, did, you, did you name it? Basically, it was the hot chocolate orange sandwich cookie. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I'm excited about that. So you did the cover story for our December issue called Win the Cookie Swap. You collaborated with Hillary Cadigan, the writer-editor, about a very sort of honest way to sort of like, you know what? It actually is competitive when you show up like you want to bring it and here's how to sort of, here's how to do it. Yeah. It, it's it's a lot. Like, you know, especially when you go to these cookie swaps now because people are pulling from old issues, they're they're really upping their game, and and they're very judgy too. Like there were some people that walked in with boxes of cookies that they had bought. What? Yeah, and I mean they were they were literally laughed right out of the yeah. Out of the I, house. I hope so. Yeah, I've never gone to a cookie swap. I hate to say, is there like a voting process or like how is it decided who actually wins? Some are coordinated. Some mm. uh, like I've been to places where they'll they'll lay uh, literally like butcher paper out. And people will write comments. You put oh. your cookies down. You put your name. Yeah. You put, write the name. Oh, of the I've cookie. actually been to a pie exchange like that one time. Right. And people will, you know, write yeah, comments yeah. on the side or write stars or like indicate, you know, some kind of a rating. Or uh, other times, at the end of the night, whatever cookies are completely gone are the winners. And then of course you have all the ones that nobody ate, and those are obviously the losers. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a uh, it's pretty competitive. Um, all right, so for the December issue, you developed uh, six different cookies, mm-hmm. three of which appear on, we have a, a tri-cover situation yeah. this this month, three different covers. Before we get started on the specific cookies, what was your sort of guiding ethos in terms of developing these cookies? I love cookies. Yeah. My, uh, my nickname in the kitchen is Sugar Man yep. uh, for a reason. So I always start with 
what do I actually want to eat? So all of these cookies came from a place of like, what do I want to eat? And then how do you then take them to a place where they're going to win a swap? Because, you know, I know that I knew that the flavors going in were going to be pretty outstanding, but they also had to look phenomenal. As you know, being on the development side of recipes at a place like Bon Appetit, like, the photo editor, oh. the creative director, everyone's going to have an opinion. Like, is it attractive enough? Is it is it bold enough? Can it hold the cover? Like, you have to bring those visuals up to the tippy top in order to sort of earn a cover. Right. And I had I actually had this visual in my head. Uh, there was a night, this is probably in 2016, Claire was doing the uh, the cookie story, and I, we were both working late, and I saw her at her desk, like, literally sketching out the cookies and I knew that she started from a place of like what were they going to look like and what were they going to look like together and for me I started from the flavor and then like how do I make them just like pop and so it was kind of a different way of thinking about it but I I actually to me that was a a big challenge because I knew the I knew what flavor I wanted going into the whole thing for me, that was like, okay, so now how can I, how can I make a, a mole cookie look good? Yeah. You know, that's interesting. I've always, like, as a, I guess, a, a visual first editor, I mm-hmm. see what the page is going to look like or what the story should look like and how it should be packaged. Other editors are much more like they just worry about the words and, mm-hmm. and whatnot, and then they'll figure out the visuals on the on the back end. Um, and then, yeah, there's two ways to approach it, and, and, and I think neither is superior to the other, but there's just yeah, you kind of have to know which way you think. All right, so. I, I want to talk about some specific cookies. Uh, I'm just going to go with my favorite. Okay. One of the cover stars. I love the look of this, but the flavor blew my mind when I tasted it because the green is due to fresh mint. Fresh mint. Talk to me about this. So this was, you know, like, at, again, starting from the flavor profile, like, I, I love Thin Mints, and a lot of my friends love Thin Mints. And I also really like the idea of a black and white cookie, even though I don't actually like black and white cookies. I they're feel not like really cookies. They're more like cakes. Cakes, yeah. right, they're, exactly. They're, they're cakeys. Yeah, and it's just, and also the, I always feel like the icing never has any flavor. It's just like this weird. Waxy. Yeah, yeah. they're kind of gross. But I like, I like the visual of it. Yeah. I think they can be really striking. The symmetry. Yeah, and like when you have a really tight line. And so I kind of just like the idea of putting those things together. And... I knew that I needed a green color. I didn't want to use mint extract. I didn't want to use dried mint because that would kind of turn it gray. And I thought, you know, I wonder if I could get away with using fresh mint. And it's green. Like, you know, thinking, I was thinking like pestos. What if yeah. I made kind of like a, a minty butter situation? And I remember the first time I did it, Molly was across from me and she looked at me and she was like, oh, kind of gave me a little side eye and a roll. Like that's gonna turn black when you bake it, and because um, we've all you've always seen like when you have mint in the fridge and if you don't use it and it right. yeah it turns dark and like right. shrivel and bleh. right and but I thought okay well you make pesto right in in a food processor and it's the oil that prevents the herb mm-hmm. from turning black so I thought okay well if I can make a mint butter and then use the mint butter oh. to make the cookie and then I thought okay well I don't want to use two machines I don't want to make make the mint butter in a food processor and then transfer it to a mixer. So I'm like, I'm just going to make the whole cookie in a food processor. And so I just kind of threw it together. And the first batch, I was like, it stayed green. And is it basically kind of like a mint butter cookie? It's a mint butter cookie. Yeah, exactly what it is. I remember I came around the test kitchen one of those first days you were doing it. And I was like, oh, what's that? And I tasted it. And I was like, oh my God, this, not only is it this beautiful, natural green, but it 
tasted like fresh mint. Like fresh mint. And it kind of blew my mind. Yeah. I, I was super happy when let, that first batch, when you did came, come over, I was like, this was pretty amazing. Like the texture wasn't quite right, but I knew I could get the texture down. It was the it was preserving the flavor and the color that yeah. was the the big part. And it took a lot of mint. I mean, it takes like a big like yeah. two cups of mint. But but that's not. But in the big, you know in the big picture, that's not that much. So no. all right, so you, so you nailed the cookie. Then you're like, all right, how do I make this look? visually appealing enough to put on the cover of a magazine. Right. And originally I was going to do like the, the, the icings. And I thought about, I, I crystallized some, some mint leaves and I thought about like kind of decorating it that way. And it just got overly complicated. And I thought, okay, you know what, let's just, let's play up the, the black and white part and then just show off some of the green, just open it up. Like don't, don't completely close them in. And that's kind of how the, the, those little, slices or the the thirds came in so you have a you have a third dipped in dark chocolate like clean line going across and yeah. then on a sort of an angle you have is you're dipping it in what is that crystallized sugar or something uh so that's uh, uh just sanding sugar white sanding, sanding sugar, sugar. Okay. yeah so actually when you bake it you punch out the round and then i used a, a bench scraper mm-hmm. so you have a nice clean line and then you just sprinkle the the sugar on one side okay bake it with the sugar when it cools off, then you uh, you dip it in the chocolate. Yeah, and you have a kind of a third, so a third sugar, a third green cookie, a third chocolate. Yeah, um, and like you said, you get that awesome Girl Scout cookie chocolate mint flavor, visually appealing, fresh mint that we've never had before. And I feel like this is one of those cookies. Like you're like, oh, this feels new, but the flavors are still so familiar. Right, right. Give me your three essential cookie baking tools that every home baker should own. If you make a lot of cookies, you absolutely have to have ice cream scoops. See, I love this. I actually, I have three at home, big, medium, small, depending on what I'm making. Oh, that's interesting. So in case you want like a big chocolate chip cookie versus, yeah. a, okay. So if I'm if I'm making my, uh, the brown butter toffee cookies, I want those to be big. Yeah. So that those get the big scoops. A normal, you know, butter cookie or a, a peanut butter cookie, those like get a little smaller. If I'm doing and, cookies for a crowd, I want them very small. And these are the scoops that have the little thumb sort of spring mechanism. To yeah, and it scoops out. Them. Yeah, and it scoops out the. It cleans out the the uh, the scoop yeah. for you. Yeah. And so this way, you can have every cookie be essentially the exact same size. Yeah. So this is what professional bakers use. A, you get a perfect circle each time. So the cookie will spread beautifully. They're exactly the same size. Also, I mean, they're great for meatballs. <laughs> totally. All right. I love that. And ice cream. And ice cream. <laughs> you, got, you got two more essential tools. If you do a lot of baking at all, you need an oven thermometer. Everybody's ovens are different. We have, mm, you know, 12 yeah. ovens downstairs or upstairs. And um, each oven is different. So you absolutely need an oven thermometer. If you have the the money or you do a lot of baking, I have a uh, digital thermometer. Those are great. It, it's accurate. You put it in there. You know exactly, you know, what... Is that the type that stays in there then has the cord that goes out to the reader on the on the counter? Exactly. And a lot of them, they do double duty. So if you get... you, could, It'll double as uh, both an oven thermometer, but also like a, a probe thermometer. Yeah. So you can stick it in a, a roast for, uh, for Christmas. And... How much of a difference will you notice between like the bottom rack in your oven and the top rack? A lot. Yeah. Because if you're... The heating element is on the bottom of the oven... So the bottom is also is always going to be hotter. You're getting just, you know, intense heat. It's radiating upwards. So for example, if you cook your or if you bake your cookies on the the bottom rack, 
the bottom of the cookie are going to brown or even burn after 12 minutes. It, whereas the top is going to be a lot cooler. So if you bake them on the top, then the bottom of the cookie is going to stay blonde. The tops of the cookies are going to brown a little bit faster. If you're doing two sheet pans of cookies, will you rotate them? Or? Yeah. Okay. So if you're trying to go a little quicker and you're doing two sheets at a time, you always want your two racks in the, the lower and the uh, upper thirds of your oven. And then bake them for about five minutes and then rotate because heat always rises. So I've heard that before. Yes. <laughs> so on the bottom rack, the bottom of the cookie will brown faster. On the top rack, the top of the cookie is going to brown faster. All right. Third tool. I love parchment paper. Yeah. Parchment paper, it's A, nothing will stick to it. Literally. Like, literally. Like even if even when your sugar falls off the cookie and caramelizes on the bottom, it will not stick to the parchment. And what is also great is that you don't have to clean your cookie sheet. Yeah, the pan stays clean. This pan stays Let clean. Let me ask you a question. Do you buy the parchment paper that comes in sheets or do you buy the parchment paper that comes in a roll that you then tear off? At the, you know, at the grocery store, it's just in the roll. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's slightly but the, annoying. But, but those sheets are pretty cool. They're pretty cool. Yeah. And actually, I reuse them. Um, so Ooh, look at you. Yeah. I mean, because it, the cookies are just leaving a little trail of butter on the the yeah. you know on the parchment. So, I Big mean. Whoop. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, make several batches of cookies. Use the same piece of paper. All right. Next cookie. I would say this is the one I was most intrigued by. And I want to say maybe... I don't say give you a hard time, but I was challenging you on this one. I was convinced this cookie was going to die. Alfajores? Alfajores, sí. With coconut dulce de leche. Yes. Talk to me about these in the chat. How would you describe them to the listener and then the challenges you faced? So it's a traditional Spanish and uh, Latin American cookie. The Spanish uh, brought a version of it over to a lot of the, the, uh, the countries that they were occupying. This particular one is based off of an Argentinian style recipe. Basically, it's a honey almond shortbread cookie that has a dulce de leche. And a lot of times the sides of the cookies are rolled in shredded coconut. But so, but this is a sandwich cookie with it's the dulce de leche in the middle. In the middle, yeah. yeah. And what I thought is, okay, there, the only coconut in this cookie is the one that's decorating the the edge of the sandwich. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to put coconut in something, I want to taste. Yes. I want it to be present. Yeah, why not? So I thought, I'm going to make an easy coconut dulce de leche. That sounded really delicious to me. So, and it, this, it's super easy can of coconut milk, can of sweetened condensed milk, you bake it for an hour and then like, you know, whip it up. When you say bake it, what do you mean? Put it in a, uh, a Pyrex baking sheet, literally just whisk them together, bake it. Oh, really? Just in the oven, not in on the, the stove top? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you don't even have to like stand over it and watch it. You have to stir it a couple of times and then it's going to look really horrible and broken when it comes out of the oven. You put it in the food processor, and it turns into oh. smooth, creamy dulce de leche. That's so cool. Yeah. So, so you have this coconut caramel, essentially. Essentially, yeah. Then you make your cookies, round cookies, yep. and then you've got the decorative element on top. So talk yep. to me about that. So like I said, that usually the, the coconuts on the side, I thought, I want to put it on the top, and I also want to make it more festive. And so... One of the cool products that I really love and I used in a couple of different cookies in this uh, package is these natural food dyes. I didn't want to use anything, you know, like kind of like the Thin Mint. I didn't want to use extracts. I didn't want to use uh, any kind of dyes. I don't know what is, I don't know what any of those chemicals are. 
I want to taste decorative elements. So I found these really cool uh, dried fruit powders and they looked cool. They were bright and vibrant. They had texture, they had flavor. And so I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss the coconut in these fruit powders, give them a little color, maybe throw some, uh, some glitter, something sparkly on them. What kind of coconut did you start off with? Dry, shredded, so okay. unsweetened. Yep. You want as fine a, a grade as possible on the coconut because okay. uh, you know, the larger flakes aren't going to look yeah. as good on a small cookie. Yeah, I was really, really excited. And you take a little bit of honey, which is also in the cookie. You brush it on top um, when the, the cookie comes out of the oven and then sprinkle the colored coconut on top. And I thought it gave it a really, really festive, fun look. Which, which colors worked best? Definitely this one. This is the the dragon fruit powder. Oh. Yeah, which I liked a lot. And we also used it in the, uh, the tie-dye cookie. And that's kind of like a hot fuchsia pink. It's a really hot fuchsia pink, yeah. And I think in the original version that I had done, this is where I was convinced that you were going to cut this cookie. <laughs> I'd cut a hole in the top cookie so you could see the dulce de leche coming through. And I think that was kind of like a little off There was something about it. I remember it was because we didn't get enough of the coconut or yeah. there was something going on. And then you also had that the bluish gray. Yeah. Uh, butterfly pea. Butterfly. That did not work as a, as a natural dye. I think the natural dyes are are really interesting and very of the moment. Some definitely power through better than right, others right. in terms of like bringing color. Yeah. This one, the dragon fruit, I think is like, it's just such an amazing color. Yeah. No, it, it's very cool. And you've got that, that dulce de leche oozing out of the sides. Yeah. Um, this one I want to eat immediately. Also, what's your, what's your biggest holiday cookie fail that you've had? <laughs> I was visiting friends and we had had a dinner and they um, didn't plan for any desserts or any, uh, any cookies. And so um, they looked at me and said, all right, Rick, um, I think you should bake some cookies. You're like, uh, okay. <laughs> so I, I scrounged. They had everything for uh, for some cookies. I made the dough um, and threw them in the oven. They had a very warped baking sheet. I had one the other day. I was using it, and at some point, it became kind of. It's become. It's newish. Has become kind of convex. Right. So it slopes down, and I don't know how this happened. But when you're trying to roast potatoes and stuff, does not roast evenly. Things go to the side. Right. Not good. And I, I don't know why I did not even, it didn't even occur to me that this was going to be an issue. So I, they even had parchment paper. So I put the parchment paper down, put all my cookies. Uh, they were all evenly spaced, put them in the oven, set my timer. I opened the oven door and they had literally all slid into the center <laughs> and created one giant sort of amoeba looking cookie. <sighs> I bet it still tasted all right. I mean, it still tasted all right, but yeah, but uh, it was, but it was not as pretty as I'm sure your third cover star, the <laughs> tie dye butter cookie. Ah, uh, yes, that I was very, very happy with, and I. It took me a long time to get this cookie right. Actually, the cookie part of it. See, that's interesting because I would assume the cookie part was the most basic part because it looks like a butter cookie with this cool, swirly, psychedelic tie dye icing on top. But what was the challenge with the cookie? Well. The icing or the decorating was going to take time. So I wanted to have a really simple cookie because I feel like if, you know, you can only ask someone to do one thing. Either you make a complicated cookie and then don't decorate it or you make a simple cookie that's then decorated. And the problem with most um, cookies that you have to roll out and cut, you have to make the dough and then let it rest or chill it. And I really wanted to just be able to make a dough, roll it, cut it, bake it. 
and that's that. Yeah, sounds good. And you just it in order to do that, you have to have the right ratios of fat and flour and sugar. And so getting that right, um, so it was sturdy enough to hold an icing, sturdy enough to be able to just put it in a mixer, then pat it down, roll it, and cut it. That took a while to to get right. But then once I got that right, then to me the icing part was like pretty simple. Um, you know, you're just kind of like channeling your your inner artist, making little swirly patterns on a on a plate or a saucer and dipping the cookie in. So uh, explain that to me. So you have your butter cookie, then you're making a glaze with multiple colors. I don't understand. How does this work? So basically, you are just you're making a really simple icing that's powdered sugar and water and a little bit of the uh, the uh, the dried dyes. You just take a plate. Put a teaspoon down of you know whatever colors you like, then add a little more to that, and then kind of swirl it in. You want to kind of make that make that tie dye pattern on the plate. Oh, before you dip before the cookie. Before you dip the cookie. Oh. And then you dip the cookie, and then you basically transfer that and pattern. Just, oh, okay. So I thought you. All right, that makes sense then. All right. Yeah. So, and you just do it with like a toothpick. You sort of swirl right, about. Right. And because what I found is when you try and decorate on the cookie. A, you get too much icing, I think. Yeah. And I, I don't like really overly no. iced cookies. I think they're gross. Goes back to the uh, the black and white cookie. Right, exactly. And so I wanted a thin glaze, but I wanted that pattern. And also the other problem is is that, you know, if you try and decorate on the cookie, like if you screw it up, you're kind of, yeah. you've just lost a cookie. This way, if you don't like the pattern that's on your plate, you just wipe it off, start over again. So the ones we shot have like that, that fuchsia, the dragon fruit, yep. correct? White. And like blue, I mean, some of these shots, it almost looks like you're looking at like the a the Earth planet, from like, yeah. from like the moon. Like there's something very psychedelic but global about it. Yeah, and it's like very trippy. Yeah, and I think that's another thing about these natural dyes is that they're ground. You know, so you can see little flecks of the fruit or yeah. the herb or whatever it, some texture. it was. Yeah, and uh, I think it just makes it very natural and and very of the moment. Are yeah. you a guy who gifts cookies? Not really, no. Not really. No. I take cookies to, to you know, swaps and parties. Any and advice like on transporting cookies? Yes. So my normal go-to method for just a standard, like a chocolate chip or something that's not necessarily decorated, mm-hmm. would be just a standard deli soup container. Okay. Like, like a, a quart a, a container. Quart container. And yeah. stack them up. Yeah. So you just, like, do a, a stack. I use them all the time. I use them for cupcakes. I use them for, uh, you know, muffins, for cookies. They're they're great transporting devices. For the decorated cookies, that you, something that you want to lay flat so that they're not stacked on top of each other, to that would ruin the uh, the decoration. I've gone to bakeries and just like begged for a cake box yeah. or a pizza box is great. Don't Ooh, use pizza box is good. Not a used one, but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> just you know, go to your. Uh, so if you have a pizzeria, you can literally take hey, and buy a box for a box. exactly yeah, or just trade them cookies. Like I'll yeah. give you like you know here's six cookies, give me a box. Yeah. And, uh, and those work great. If you do this a lot, if you're a really hardcore uh, cookie swap person, there is a really cool, uh, it, it's like a little suitcase that has uh, shelving, a shelving no system in way. it. No way. Yeah. So you can basically just slip all your cookies in. They're in nice little shelves. Nothing gets damaged. They're completely protected. Yeah. I can imagine there's nothing more deflating than spending all this time on a cookie and then getting to the swap and open the box and all the icings have been it's smushed horrible. together. Yeah, exactly. You've, you've lost before you, you have even started. completely lost. You just oh go home. The, I would say, these are probably the most sort of interesting and least 
I don't know, like I don't know if I would say least obvious cookies in terms of holiday cookies, but the ancho mole cookies just visually that before we even get into the flavor profile, just what they look like and how these guys came together. Um, so someone on Instagram had uh, DM me a shot of a mole cookie from a bakery here in the U.S. And what did it look like? I mean, it kind of looked like how you'd expect it, just a brown blob. Yeah. And I was intrigued by the idea of it, but visually it just looked horrible. And and I think, you know, like the, the actual dish, you can, you know, add toppings to it and make it visually interesting. Um, but as a cookie, it just seemed... It, it was not appealing yeah. to me at all. But, but I like the idea. But something of it. piqued your curiosity about ooh mole cookie. Yeah. It was a, it was a challenge. Like I I can imagine all of those flavors being really good in a in a cookie situation. But you know how do you make that visually interesting? And then um, I was weirdly I was at uh, Fire Island. It was really late at night. I was thinking about the cookies and my my buddy had to work late. He was working on a, an advertising new business pitch. And so we're sitting at the table and I was like, what if I did a mole slice and bake? And he's like, what? I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> hear me out. Yeah. So like all of the all of the same ingredients that are in mole, but in their but whole e- form. But, but moles have like 28 ingredients. So, right, what, so right. when that, what did that mean to you? What ingredients meaning what? Um, so, yeah, certainly not all of them. But um, the, the main flavor profiles are the, uh, the seeds, the nuts, the chocolate, the fruit, and yeah. the chili. Right. So I yeah. thought, OK, so that's that's five things. Then I just like add flour and sugar uh, and butter and, and toss it all together in their whole form. Right, right. So I, I really like that idea. I like the idea of being able to see all of the ingredients. And then I made one version of the first pass at this. When I looked at it, it actually reminded me if you've been to the pyramids in Mexico, the grout that the Aztecs used actually looks very similar to that in like there's like little bitty stones and like different size this one is so they're kind of triangular shaped and they have it almost stained glass quality because you have like the dried papaya or mango which is orange and then the pieces Mm -hmm. of chocolate which are obviously chocolate colored and the nuts and it's all they're kind of suspended yeah and so when when i got that you know when i looked at it and i thought that reminds me of the pyramid i thought okay well obviously this needs to be a triangle shape uh, which a slice and bake is easy because oh, you just that's how the triangle came about. Yeah. yeah. So you literally just slap the dough log down three times on each side and it becomes a triangle. So I was like, all right, that's it's it's Done. an easy way of like making a, a unique shape. It's so amazing when an idea comes together, you're like, oh, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. The the uh, the quintessential elements of a mole sort of broken down, reassembled. The cookie itself for the dough of which all these elements are suspended, what is the flavor profile of the cookie itself? It's basically an, an ancho agave cookie. Okay. So there's a little bit of, of agave uh, syrup in there for flavor uh, and to, to soften it up a little bit. And then ancho powder, there's actually, a, a I think it's a quarter cup of uh, ancho powder in there. And so what does that do for the flavor profile? It gives you that kind of nice uh, like reddish brown color, mm-hmm. but it also adds a little bit of heat at the end. So you do kind of taste a little something. Yeah, something. yeah. In my mind, to be called a mole, you do need a little bit of a, a kick, a little spiciness yeah. at the end. So, yeah. It kind of reads like a, like a warm cinnamon kind of finish. Mm. What's the most overrated holiday cookie? I think gingerbread. I like ginger cookies a lot, but I feel like, you know, the, the hard, like, kind of cardboardy ginger cookies that people decorate. like. Eh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just, eh, I don't want to eat that. 
my sister gets very into doing that with my son, who's now a little bit too old for that, but doing the whole gingerbread house sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you spend all day doing, and then no one actually eats. You're like, yeah, I'm good. Right. But I love ginger molasses as a flavor, as a cookie. Yeah. I think that's like, a, it's such a great combo. If done well. If done well. Okay, so this, there was this one cookie. <laughs> there was debate. I'm like, is that a cookie, or is it like a skillet? Pie dessert thing, <laughs> or like what is going on here? I'm talking about the butter pecan skillet cookies that I'm still not sure if it's cookie, but it's already in the magazine, so I can't rescind <laughs> it now. Took a good photo. It looks cool. Talk to me about this. What was the inspiration for this? Um, so again, this was, you know, going back to trying to make this easy for the reader, right? There's some cookies in here that are a little bit harder than others. I feel like skillet cookies are such an easy cookie to make because you don't have to roll out the dough, right? You don't need a special sheet pan. You just need a skillet. That's a good point. So you don't need your your scoops or bench scrapers or Nothing. any of that stuff. Right. And I also, you know, from a visual perspective, the other thing that I like about this is it's a very different shape, yeah. you know, altogether. Because when you slice it, you're slicing it into... into like, Pizza slices, Pizza slices, basically, yeah, exactly. triangles where everything else is round, right? For the most so, part. So, so that was a you know like from the onset, I knew I wanted a skillet cookie of some type okay. because it was easy and because it would give me a different shape than you know the, all the circles that were going to be in the rest of the package. Do you know you know what kids love? What? When you're on vacation, they love the cowboy cookie that's in oh. the skillet, comes to the table hot with a scoop of ice cream in the middle. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Well, funny that you brought up ice cream because this. So the the flavor profile is basically like an uh, a love letter to butter pecan ice cream, mm, like you know yeah. I I like that flavor a lot. All my friends love this flavor. So that was thought, my that was my dad's favorite ice cream. Yeah, as a kid I didn't quite understand it. Now I, that I'm a bit older, I get it. Yeah, no, I agree. When I was little, that was not what I wanted to eat. No. But my dad loved pecan praline and butter pecan. Yeah. But sorry, so what's the the cookie itself before we get to the the nuts and the glaze and everything on top of the what was what was the basic philosophy for the cookie itself? Well, the overall flavor profile was like I wanted someone to take a bite of this cookie and think, "Wow, this tastes like butter pecan ice cream." Mm. And so the way that I did that is the the actual cookie dough is pretty much a straight up shortbread butter cookie. But what I did is I I caramelized and made like a praline out of the pecans. So you toss the uh, the pecans in uh, maple syrup, put them in the oven, bake them, they caramelize. So it's basically like a, a brittle. You take half of them, pulverize them, and make your cookie dough. So you've got like- Oh, the, so they're in the dough itself. They're in the dough, and but they're like pretty finely ground. Yeah, yeah. So They're imparting flavor, but you don't really notice. There's not yeah. really a texture. It's yeah. just adding to the crumbliness of the cookie. And then the other half get uh, used on top for garnish. And then the glaze is uh, just a, a milk and powdered sugar. So you get a little bit of the uh, the dairy notes. So that's, that helps you get that kind of ice creamy flavor. And then because it's the holidays, you know, we threw some some glitter and some uh, sparkles on top. Which kind of gives you, it's just like, it's like fresh snow. It's like snow, snow. Yeah. exactly, yeah. Wow, you, you're getting me in the mood for the holidays, Rick Martinez. Before we let you go, what uh, where will you be this holiday season? So actually, I'm going to be in Mexico City. Ooh, um, nice. Yeah, like so 74. 74. Perfect. Yeah, and uh, and actually, my dad's coming down. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, I've been I've been really excited. I bought a car, so he and I are going to drive around uh, Mexico in the center. There, all the monarchs migrate south into Mexico, and there's a forest south of Mexico City where all the monarchs hang out. 
And wow. so we're going to go down there and, and get just... and, and get monarch tattoos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this sounds like a buddy movie. <laughs> All right, Rick Martinez. Um, this is awesome. You can find Rick's beautiful and delicious cookie recipes in the December issue of Bon Appetit on stands now. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Uh, Delaney, I feel like this is a seasonally appropriate day to record a winter drinks podcast. It is gloomy outside. It, it was like 30-something degrees and rainy this morning. It was like, it's been like the same level of darkness from 8 a.m. till 4 p.m. No, it, day never showed up. No, just didn't come. So, it was like a good time to start drinking. <laughs> yeah, when it's 4 o'clock. Yeah. But we're it, good. It could be. The sun never came out. So, what? Um, literally, what are we drinking? Okay, uh, we're going to do three cocktails, all winter... In some sort of way. Um, so maybe we're talking like a New Year's Eve type vibe. Maybe mm. we're talking just your Tuesday night, December. I had a terrible day at work cocktail. Yeah, maybe just Maybe, yeah, very familiar with that. And then maybe something that's just like a little, you know, a change of pace. Okay, first question. Yeah. When you think of a wintry cocktail, what do you think of compared to when you think of like a summery cocktail? Sure. I think one of the, <laughs> one of the ultimate drinking myths is that cocktails have to fall into a season there mm. is a seasonality to cocktails sometimes that's true for the most of the most of the time i don't subscribe to that belief at all to me a winter cocktail could be a bunch of different things it could be something that's super bright and citrusy and clean and makes me forget that i'm sitting in this rain right that it's not cold it could be something that Oh, Adam's already questioned. I me. mean, sure. That's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go have a mai tai and pretend it's no, not no, winter. No, 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 like, no, not yeah. not like that. Not like well, that. Then, what, then what is it like? Like, like say a martini with a lemon twist. To me, that's okay. Clean, crisp, little bit of citrus. Like that yeah, brings maybe, me right out of the. Maybe you've got a tuxedo on, and maybe you have a tuxedo on, or it could be something that does just play into it. It's like, hey, you know what? The weather's dark out there. I need something that's really going to warm me up. I'm going to lay into the whiskey. I'm going to lay into rum. I'm yeah. going to lay into like spirits with a deeper, darker flavor. That's that, that, that's what I was getting at. Do you find yourselves, as a man of drink, partaking more in the darker spirits in the wintertime than in the summertime? Absolutely in the wintertime, yeah. yeah. But in the in the wintertime, I'd say I probably straddle the line pretty 50-50 in terms of darker cocktail versus lighter cocktail. All right. What, what's up first? So first is like the... Can I have a potato chip as we're talking? Oh, please. Yeah. By all means. I'm, 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 <laughs> they will make all of these better. I, yeah, so I, want, I need something salty. Okay, so first up, I think we ran this recipe in maybe like, I want to say maybe 2015. Okay. And it is, it's a play on a really classic uh, cocktail formula. And I think we just ran it calling it the champagne cocktail. Hmm. Okay. And essentially it's, it's a, a mixture of bubbly wine, bitters, lemon, like kind of pulverized lemon and sugar and that's it it's like the easiest party cocktail right, you see what you got all right so you're opening what are you opening now uh i'm opening so this is not a cocktail you want to make with like your you know birth year bottle of champagne no. right you're not mixing the best champagne you're not you breaking the out the dom for this no this is just a bottle of like 14 dollars prosecco okay so it's it's nothing of note i love 14 dollars prosecco that, oh, is, yeah. that is my go zone all holiday long that on ice Four cocktails oh, is yeah. unbeatable. Also, yeah, straight up on ice, go for it. Maybe even a little uh, lemon twist in there. All right. Sunday morning with a little splash of OJ. A little splash of OJ. Oh, my God. That sounds so good. That is a good sound. Like the vapors releasing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, se that's seasonal just there. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so what's the order? I would never know what. So, I'd be worried I'm doing the wrong order. So, essentially, when you make this cocktail, it's just one thing going into another thing. The, the first thing you do is you take... Basically, you make this for one bottle. The serving size is one bottle of Prosecco. So you take one lemon, 
really thinly sliced, like you can see here. Slice across in little yeah, rounds. Across into rounds. You don't want to. You want to keep the entire circle there, um, and you want to, you know, like less or close to an eighth of an inch. Like you don't want it to be a wide round of gotcha. lemon. And you have these now in a big four cup so glass I have this, yeah. Pyrex measuring cup thing. Totally. So you want to throw them all in there, and then you add um, a teaspoon of bitters. You okay. can use for this like. Probably more traditional to use Angostura, which is a, an orange-based bitter. Um, you'll Something find... that everyone should have in exactly. their bar. I used uh, Peychaud's today. so like, <laughs> Another again, classic. It's another classic. It's similar in pl- uh, flavor profile. So you muddle them all up until the sugar dissolves. You're so you using... use oh, how much sugar? So you're using four. It says four sugar cubes. I did not know this. One sugar cube is one teaspoon of sugar. So okay. you could either do four teaspoons or four right, sugar Four cubes. teaspoons, and you're using a wooden spoon and just mushing it all together. Just mushing it all up. If you have like a mortar and pestle situation, you could do this in there. If it's a lightweight one. If, if you're in, at Andy if you're Baragani's Andy apartment Baragani, and yeah, you exactly. have 12 mortar and pestles to choose from at his like yes. holiday. See, you should have a holiday party. Can we talk about Baragani? I bet that would be a fun Wait. party to go to, right? Oh, he had a, a birthday party recently. I wasn't invited to that. <laughs> I was having my own birthday party that I didn't invite him to. That's okay. So maybe it was a, a he retaliation. He could have at least invited the boss to his. He could have. I'm going to text him right now. <laughs> I'm sorry, Andy. Okay. So you're basically uh, muddling up these lemons until they release all of the juice, and you want the the uh, rind to be kind of soft, not yep. like totally crumbling apart, but soft. Uh, and then you take a few of the slices, and we're mm-hmm. doing this in. Um, just like a stemless wine glass, you can serve this in literally whatever you want. This would not make sense like in a champagne flute because the no. flute would be too narrow. Correct? Exactly. Exactly. So I do like three of the little slices in one mm-hmm. glass. And then you just want to drain a bit of the lemon juice and dissolved sugar. And it has like a nice sort of Campari orange. This look uh, yeah, to it. because of the Pichaud's yeah. Pichaud's is a is a red uh, bitter, so it's gonna give it that color for sure. Would you ever are right, you're pouring it oh Prosecco right now. You just handed this to me. Yeah. We're going to not serve it on ice. You could, if you wanted to, we do if, not say okay, that. that because in, a, in an ideal world, you're pulling this uh, bottle out of an ice bucket, yep. and it's totally cold. And yeah. Can I ask you this? Thank sure. you. It looks beautiful. Would you ever just pour the entire bottle into a pitcher where you've mashed up the, the lemon, the bitters, yeah, and, the, and, you totally and then pour could. it from there. But I would only do that if you were going to pour it all right away. Yeah. You don't want it to sit outside of the bottle. Oh, Emma, this is really good. Is it, <laughs> I, I, no, because I love – sometimes Prosecco on its own can be a – it just balances it out nicely with the bitterness of – And the sweetness. Yeah, yeah. The, but the bitterness of the, the bitters – I never realized they're called bitters. Um, <laughs> the, the lemon, which – Brings the sour, but also that bit of rind, yes. which has that edge to yeah, it, and a little bit of like fruity oil to it. It's yeah, it's, and, there's, and the sugar is a, a little bit, but not like oh my god, that's really sweet. Exactly, yeah. It's it's a very balanced for being such a simple like everyone has these ingredients kind of cocktail. It's very balanced. I like very this. Balanced. Yeah, I, this is so much more fun than just a glass of prosecco on its own. Exactly, and and the reason that I make this cocktail a lot is because gonna have some more potato. Chips. Please, by all means, by all means. I'm kind of upset I didn't get a bag of potato chips. Now. They're free in the kitchenette. Okay, Emma, I'll be right back. No. The reason I make this all the time is because like someone always, like when you ask someone to bring wine, right, they're the people that bring the wine that you want to drink, and then someone will always end up with like a $12 bottle of Cava yeah. or Prosecco, and it sits in my fridge, and I'm like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to use this for. Also nice about this for party situations, you've got the bitters in your little bar that's, that 
is there forever. Yeah. You always have sugar. You always have lemons. Yeah. Super easy to make. Yeah. You don't need to run like 10 minutes before the party starts. You're like, oh shit, I forgot the. No. All right. I'm adding this to my repertoire. You're one for one, Delaney. Hell yes. All right. So next up, we're going to move into um, no wine, more booze. So this is this is a cocktail that I call a fillerless cocktail, and a fillerless cocktail hmm. is a cocktail that only uses liquor or some kind of aperitivo amaro in it. There's no juice. There's no seltzer. There's no wine. Sounds it's dang- booze. Sounds dangerous. And that's the, the classification of the cocktail I want to drink in the winter is it's filled with booze. I mean that's a Negroni essentially. And that's a that's a great segue. Both the next uh, cocktail is actually a riff on a Negroni. And the last time we did this pod, I did a Boulevardier, mm. which is also a riff on a Negroni. Yep. This is called a white Negroni. So it is a three-ingredient cocktail. You have like all manner of measuring cups I, and like every everything was size. dirty. Everything <laughs> was dirty in the test kitchen. I literally this is the ultimate mismatch of these uh, are the, you have those oxo ones where it's like the flying saucer at yeah. an angle around the pitcher I, I feel like right now i look like a like kind of a howard hughes situation yeah. all these weird liquids in jars all right, so what are we making all right so we're gonna make a white negroni okay and a white negroni as the name uh, would lead you to believe is basically clear yep um you're not using capari you're not using sweet vermouth you are still using gin hmm. so it's going to be an ounce and a half of gin um, an ounce and a half of sweet vermouth. So you could use Lillette. You could use Kochi Americano. Wait, dry vermouth or sweet vermouth? Sorry, uh, dry, dry vermouth. Yeah, 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 dry vermouth. And then you're going to use uh, half an ounce of uh, Suze. So Suze is a French aperitif. Suze is one of those bottles I see everywhere. And yes. I'm like, I've never bought that. I've probably never drunk it, but I know the label by heart. Yes, and it's a beautiful label. It has that like cool yeah, big S on it. Yeah. yeah. Suze is kind of like a light Amaro. It's made with gentian root, which is the base of most Italian like famous Amari. Um, so it's taken the place of the Campari in what would exactly. be exactly. It's bringing it's bringing bitterness and it's bringing like a floral aspect. But in a typical Negroni, the ratios are usually one to one, one, to, one, one. to one. Yeah. So the thing about Suze is that it packs a lot more flavor than Campari, even though it, it looks lighter. Mm. Uh, Campari's it's kind of like listening to one guy playing a guitar is Campari and listening to an entire orchestra is Suze, right? It's I don't know if I would make the guitar to com- orchestra comparison. It's like one guy playing guitar compared to like Led Zeppelin or something, like a <laughs> okay. whole band. Okay, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, that's fair, that's fair. Um, okay, yeah, so we have Jimmy Page, we have Robert Plant. All the time John Bonham's in there. There you go. Um, John Paul Jones. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're playing Immigrant Song or something. Playing... Okay. <laughs> this is the cocktail Wait, version Emma, of Immigrant Song. Emma, if we song. start singing a Zeppelin song, do we have to pay for it? Or only if it's actually... Shut down. Emma, shut that down. All right. No, you have to... You're not going to stop until... until you have ice. You're pouring in the gin. We're doing a double... We're doing a double... Oh, I actually have a good thought. question. You said the gin. You just did... The driver uh, vermouth. Do you have when re- making a regular traditional Campari? Sure. What are your thoughts on the best types of gin to use? Because gin can vary widely in its botanicals, etc. For sure. Um, I am, and people will. Different bartenders will give you different answers. Um, I think it's a two-part answer. One, if you want a blanket statement, I say you want London-style dry gin. Okay. Like you want something that is very sharp and confident in its flavor. There's not a million different things going on. It's juniper. Cool. It's it's yep. a little bit bitter. It's a little bit floral. That's it. Um, but then the second answer to that question is it really depends on what else you're using. 
there are mm. if you want to get super nerdy and you want to use gin and vermouth and amaro that's all made in your immediate area and they're all going to be like these crazy different flavors yeah we're not, we're not, we're we're not doing that. all right so london yeah, basically straight London up, dry gin london cool. dry yeah. you, what you have in your picture literally looks like uh mountain dew right now <laughs> it is it's actually just this is how you make homemade mountain dew it, there is a very day glow green quality to it <laughs> or day glow yellow at least day glow yellow. yeah it's like a mountain dew gatorade situation um yeah but always again and this is the this is like bartending 101 i feel like if it's just liquor if there's no fresh mm-hmm. juice always stir always stir you don't so when you shake you want to agitate the juice and the liquor together to sort of emulsify you're them. basically emulsifying the cocktail yeah um anything else you just need to stir unless so like a, like a margarita for instance correct okay because you have that fresh lime juice yeah unless it's like part of the style of the drink like a shaken negroni is yeah. a drink and it's a totally different Mouthfeel just aerates it kind mm-hmm. of and it makes it My lighter. wife, who will partake in a vodka martini now and then, yes. she likes the martini shaken, which I know is not traditional, but she actually likes those little chips of ice that end up sort of floating on the surface. I like. I actually like them, too. It's kind of a cool little thing. It's not, it is like a cool said, little It's thing. not as clean and this and that, but it's, it's, a, it's a thing. It's a thing. Okay, so in this one, you're including the ice with a lemon yes. uh, peel. Lemon peel. Rind peel. You know Twist? what's funny? I was Twist? having what this. Is, I was yeah. having this debate. Someone called this lemon zest, and and this is. No, if you, I mean, if you obviously well, can't see this. Cooking, you would call it. You would call yeah. lemon zest, but someone called this lemon zest, and I looked it up, and people call that the zest of the lemon. Like the zest. What is, you mean in bartender speak? Or? Yeah, yeah. No. Which is nothing. Something I would never in a you million should not years be friends with those people. No. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, like this has a very weird uh, color to it for sure. Hmm. Okay. It's interesting. It's, it's less assertive smelling than a Negroni. Yeah. Definitely on the more chill side. <laughs> it's definitely bitter. <laughs> okay, this is not for me. It's not you? Wait. Oh. It does not taste like Mountain Dew. No, it doesn't. See, this is interesting because this one, I find Negronis too sweet yeah. because of the sweet vermouth in the Gavari. Sure. This is like the opposite. Yes. I want. I would want a. I, I would like a little something to sort of take that sort of herbal edge off. This is like herbal to the max. Yeah. But this is also the kind of thing that I love during the winter. Like, again, if I'm going to be sitting around eating like comforty wintery food, if I'm eating a braised whatever, mm-hmm. like this cocktail, you're insane. I am Have not you ever, insane. like braised short ribs. And, you know, <laughs> all right, you know, all right. If I ever make it over to the Delaney house for a, to watch your Eagles lose, I'm not having that to drink. All right. Fair. Third cocktail. Uh, third cocktail. But thank you for making it. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. Well, cool. Um, okay, we're emptying this out real quick. Okay, so third cocktail is another kind of deviation on a classic. And Did we ever did we invent that drink last time? What drink? The deviation. Oh, we didn't. No. I think we should name something. Let's come up with a drink. We should. Call it the, the deviation. deviation. Yeah. Okay. By the end of the week. Don't tell anyone. We better do it before this podcast comes out. So oh, hurry shit. Up. I'll do it tonight. All right. Okay, so this is another deviation not on a Negroni, but on uh, really the first famous cocktail, the Manhattan. Mm. Late 1800s, invented at the Manhattan. Um, it's a very simple cocktail. Did you just say like at the Manhattan, like the island of Manhattan? No, no, or no, like no, an no. actual place called the Manhattan? <laughs> a place called the Manhattan. Is it in Manhattan? Uh, yes. It's, uh, the Manhattan is a super simple cocktail. It's, it's rye, it's sweet vermouth, and it's bitters. There you go. 
So is it what? So then, what is the key to making a good one? Is it the balance? Is it the stirring? Like that's what I don't understand about these super simple cocktails. Why is one better? Oh, th this place makes the best martinis, and I'm like, well, what does that sure, mean? Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I think one, it's about what you choose to include, right? Mm -hmm. So like, whatever Joe Schmo bar you go to and a dive bar, and you're like, hey, can I have a Manhattan? They're not going to probably pour you the whiskey they you think is best. You should be pretty best. particular about which, yes. which which whiskey. Totally, and. And for me, it's always we've kind of fallen into a tendency uh, in broad strokes to make Manhattans with bourbon, mm -hmm. um, and I think they're actually a lot better with rye. They were yes. originally made with rye. Um, it just brings a spicier, more interesting flavor. Bourbon leans sweet, yep. uh, rye leans spicy. So next time, say I would like a rye Manhattan. I would like a rye Manhattan. Do you do yours up or on the rocks? I do mine up. Okay, but you know, yeah. no, no judgment. The rye that we're gonna use is oh, what did I now? I forget what I even poured. Oh, High West. High okay. West Double Rye. So it's a blended rye from uh, Utah. I've actually had that in Utah before. Oh, yeah. Wait, you yeah, well, uh, you ski out there, right? I've been out there. Um, <laughs> I've been. Do you know what the manufacturer suggested retail price is for High West? Is it like middle of the road or is it? I would say High West is middle of the road. It's the kind of bottle that I would buy if I was having a party and I was okay. like, okay, I'm going to make some Manhattan's for You want to make something nice but not too nice. Exactly. I'm not going to go out and you know spend 95 no. bucks on a bottle of rye. No, Maybe I'd go out and spend 45 All right, so you, know you just I mean? added the, the rye? The rye. Um, so it's two ounces of rye per yep. drink. Um, and per then, drink. Okay, so you're doing yeah, four yeah. So ounces we're double. Right there. Yeah, so that's four ounces of rye. Uh, and then instead of sweet vermouth, we're going to go with a verna. Mm. And a verna is a Sicilian Amaro that we've talked about before. So then how would you differentiate a verna from sweet vermouth? So sweet vermouth is going to lean – I mean, at, at its core, it's different because vermouth is a wine-based uh, liqueur, right? So. Yep. It's always going to bring a super fruity flavor to it, and it's always going to lean more in like a green vegetal side. Uh, a verna is a you know a liquor based; it's a distillate based um, uh, amaro, and then it's also a lot deeper in flavor. So, with a vermouth, you're kind of floating near the surface. With a verna mm. or amaro, you're going to go deeper. You're going to get crazier root and bark, rootsy herbal. Exactly. If you haven't had before, it, like. You've had Jaeger before, yeah. then, then you kind of know where you're going with this. <laughs> exactly. So right now you're just, that's just Averna, Amaro, and rye. Yes. Nothing correct. else? Nothing else. And then we're hmm. going to just finish it with a little bit of bitters. Oh. Well, when did the bitters go in? After you pour it? Yeah. Oh, look at that, Emma. You ever done that before? Nope. She's like, nope. Again, also in the winter, it's like when I want a cocktail in the winter, I want something that's going to like hit me, and mm -hmm. I don't have to do all this crazy kind of stuff. Are it, you right? drinking this in the beginning of the night or more late night? I like this for a nightcap. So kind of a I, digestive. I, yes. Digestivo. Um, and I also like, I will say, I like this because I can have one of these, and then I can finish my night with just a glass of Averna. And that's wow, the piece. So, you're, so now you're doing a couple of dashes. Yeah, two this dashes. this is Peixot. This is Peixot. Which yeah. has a nice, like, uh, almost um, the color of a... Uh, Grenadine. Yeah, Grenadine or Campari. Yeah. Does this have a name? Yeah, this is called the Black Manhattan. Okay, yes. I knew that, actually. Weirdly, I knew that. All right, so right now we're not doing it with ice. This we're is not. Just up in, would you, what would you typically serve this in? I would serve this in a coupe if I was serving it up. If I was serving it with ice, I would, I would serve it in a rocks glass. Um, next question. Final question yeah. before we go. Then in terms of um, uh, what would you accessorize this with? I would do a Luxardo cherry. Ooh. The nice. test kitchen was yeah. out of Luxardos oh. and maraschino. There were zero cherries in the test kitchen. Would you ever do an orange zest? You could do. You can do an orange peel, orange zest. Yeah. Woo! Actually, the, it's it's fascinating how 
much the Averna smooths it out. It you at first you're like, oh shit, rye, yeah. and then it's like, oh no, wait, that's, that's nice. really smooth. Yeah, it yeah. starts off hot and then smooths out after that. Yeah, and with it with an orange peel or with a cherry, it, it'll bring a little more sweetness to it and, and round it out a little more. Alex Liney, thanks for coming by. Thanks for the cocktails. Thanks for all your serving vessels. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll uh, bring these back down to the test kitchen. Hi, this is Alex Beggs, and here's Cook, Mary Kill. Cook. Ugh, I've been busy lately. Writing stuff, buying endless Christmas presents, buying endless wrapping paper for those presents, running out of tape, going to fancy tea parties with powerful women. I did some laundry. Very busy. And that's how I found myself having popcorn for dinner twice in the past week. But not just any popcorn, rosemary garlic popcorn. Here's how I make it. In a Dutch oven, put some vegetable oil and three popcorn kernels over medium-high heat. Bob's Red Mill sent me some of their white popcorn, and I was like, ooh, free popcorn. But now I'm obsessed with it. It has a corny sweet flavor that blows my mind every time. Anyway, while that's heating up, put three-ish tablespoons of butter in a saucepan with a sprig or two of rosemary and as many smashed garlic cloves as you can stand. When the first kernels start popping, add a half cup more into the pot and cover. Check on your butter, stir it around. Shake the popcorn pot like you know what you're doing. Stir butter again. Shake popcorn again. At some point, the butter will be brown, the popcorn will stop popping, and you'll combine them in the biggest bowl you have, the one your dad has referred to as the bedpan. A meticulous person might take the rosemary sprig and garlic out, but a busy person might salt the hell out of the whole thing and get on with the show. Good luck out there. Mary. I want to figuratively marry the prankster who ate the $120,000 banana at Art Basel this week. The sculpture, I guess, by Maurizio Catalan was a banana duct taped to the wall and was titled Comedian. Get it? Bananas, banana peels, comedy, but it's stuck on a wall. Like comedy, it rots easily. My other artistic interpretations aren't podcast appropriate. Anyway, so three buyers bought versions of the piece. I repeat, a $120,000 banana. So a professional prankster named David Daytuna, who looks like an economics professor or something, walks into the gallery in Miami, peels it off the wall, and eats it. But it's all good. The gallery and the artist aren't pressing charges. They seem to love it. But it does make you start wondering who's the artist here and who's the prankster. Kill. Ugh. I want to kill the stunty holiday KFC fire log. This is a scented log that makes your cozy living room smell like a bucket of fried chicken for three hours. You know what else would do that? An actual bucket of chicken, which you can eat. One review says, The KFC fire log was a great addition to my house. Made my room smell finger-licking good. My friend, have you considered the casual art of cooking? Popcorn counts. This log is like a vanilla cupcake scented candle. Why do people like these? It just makes you hungry. I consider that torture. And yet, it's sold out already. So is the Taco Bell Crunchwrap Supreme wrapping paper. Kill me. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman, with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Namine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.